welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and I'm the host for today's episode with Peter Block. This is the third episode in a series of six episodes, focusing on the six conversations from Peter Block's work. We began with invitation and possibility, and today we will focus on the ownership conversation. These conversations are designed to occur in small groups, seeking to produce transformation in communities. We'd like to once again start this episode with a question, but fair warning, this question might feel more accusatory if you don't have the context of the first two episodes. So it might be good to come back after you've listened to the episodes on invitation and possibility. At this point, I'd like to invite you to take a breath with me. Bring to mind something you often find yourself complaining about. This could be in your work, in your neighborhood, even in your family. Bring something to mind you care deeply about and would like to change. Something that bothers you. Something that frustrates you. Something that's driving you crazy. Now take another breath. And take a minute and consider what others are doing to cause the situation. Another breath. Finally, consider this question. What have you done to contribute to the very thing you complain about or want to change? What is your contribution to this problem? Another breath. And the question again. What have you done to contribute to the very thing you complain about or want to change? Now take one last breath and hold that answer in your mind as we begin to listen to Peter. Organizational life is designed to breed helplessness. Patriarchy counts on people's dependency and helplessness to sustain itself. If you look at poverty, The real cost is people believe what others have said about them. And when we even call somebody poor, we treat them as if they're broken. If I decide that I'm going to fix people, which is what help is, what colonialism is, I need a broken person in order to feel good about my fixing methodologies. And so when we say in this process, do not be helpful, it doesn't mean we don't care. It's just knowing what's best for others as a form of claiming ownership over their being and their soul and what they do. And so you say, well, what do we do about that? Because my own belief is that people and we as a culture work best when we all are co-creating it. No matter where I am in the hierarchy, if I can believe that this is a life I am constructing, I can live with the fact it doesn't turn out well. At least it was my life. And so to me, the core of what kept me in this work for 40 years is the notion that our job is to confront people with their freedom. And that's what ownership is about. Ownership is the ability to realize I can complain as much as I want, but it has no power. Traditional narrative and context is one of scarcity, says there's not enough for everybody. It's one of control that says if we can't predict the future, we can't survive. It's one where problem solving, it becomes after a while, that's all that I am as a problem solver. And if I've got nothing to do, like wait in a doctor's office, I'm lost unless I brought some tools with me. 
the traditional context says that relationships are a means to an end and we have to work together. All those are the narratives of creating loss of power, loss of influence. And to me, the work with poverty is to stop using the word and to say, what are you good at? The context that we're living into here is one of abundance, depth, replacing help with curiosity, where relationship may be the point. So the ownership conversation is at the heart of the matter. It's a hard question to ask, the bottom line question, after I've listened to your complaints and my complaints for hours on end or a lifetime. And so what's your contribution to the very thing that you are objecting to? Now, you can't just walk in a room and say to somebody, hi, my name is Peter, what's your contribution to the problem? You need to build trust. And so this question falls in the middle where you begin by saying, I'd like to invite you into a conversation. It begins by saying with the invitation, there's a hurdle. Something will be required of you if, if you say yes. Every invitation makes a demand on me, unless it's to entertainment. But in the workplace, it makes a demand. And the major hurdle is, will you join with me in acting as co-creators, co-constructors of some kind of future that we believe in, even if we have different versions of it? And so the second conversation is the crossroads you're at, which gets us closer together and never fails to build trust. What's the possibility you're a stance for? Fair enough. And then we get down to business. And I say to you who showed up here and me and all of us, so we're all co-creators of whatever we're touching, including this moment. And so those of you that stepped forward, those of you that went first, got it. As soon as you... find your voice, even in this setting, small group or big, then you're acting as a participant in creating this experience for everybody who's touched by it. The faith that's required in this stupid work, whatever this work is, is that if people feel they have some choice, they'll create something to increase our humanity and our habitability. And you look around and you say, well, these people aren't helping, they're hurting. I think it's underneath because they don't feel this world is theirs to create. Their life is not theirs to create. And so they look to heroic leaders, strong leaders, dictators, monarchs, kings, queens, top management, CEOs, C-suites, white collars. These are all variations on monarchy. And it's our stance in the face of them that determines the well-being of our institutions. If people in the middle and the bottom don't feel, I'm helping create something that works here. It's not going to be a very productive place. And so this is the center of a lot. All of us are in the business of confronting people with their freedom, whether you're a coach, a priest, a sister, whether you're a facilitator, an animateur, if you live in Montreal, or a boss, or a CEO, or a first-line supervisor, or somebody who drives the bus and talks to people. We all have the same job which is to help support the idea that we're here to humanize wherever we are. And the only way to do that is to break people into small groups and have them talk to each other about things that matter. And that's the difference between a social gathering or a meetup or a dating service is we have a relational intent. My hope with this work is that leader is convener becomes what we teach people to do, that we teach people that if they will use questions like this, and every question leads to every other, this is not a six-point program with six conversations. Start anywhere you want. Whatever the world gives you an opening, 
that's good coaching. You, those of you are therapists and coach and healers and sisters and priests and, and leaders and CEOs and bosses. You say, well, how do I want to show up on the human side of my business? Well, it's by asking people, what's the crossroads you're at this stage of your life? You don't do performance reviews. You don't say, here are the three things that are good about you and three things you need to work on. Don't tell me what I need to work on. Anybody tells me what I need to work on, I understand they're disappointed in me, but nothing I do is going to end that disappointment. Better just to say I'm angry and disappointed. When people say, would you like some feedback? I always say, no, I don't want any feedback. Now, if you're mad at me, tell me, I can handle it. If you're disappointed in me, well, it's good for you to say that, but nothing's going to change. I did not organize in my life about your expectations. I never asked people, what's your expectations? And so the question, what's your contribution to the very thing you're complaining about is the most powerful question I know. A lot of people won't answer it. I was once lucky enough to be Wednesday in a five-day program where Ford Motor Company was training 2,000 people and 50 at a time. I thought, oh, this is 40 days of work. On Wednesdays, I'm your man. And I went there and had a miserable Wednesday. I said, well, next time will be better. Next time, nothing I said made any difference. They, they all, you know, white male learning position, arms folded, staring. Sometimes they come with caps on. I say, why are you wearing a hat? They say, well, we have a one o'clock tea time. And I thought, kind of puts perspective into my contribution. We decided I didn't have enough time. That's why I wasn't making a difference. So we decided let's start Tuesday night and Wednesday. And so at dinner, the woman said, okay, guys, let's go down. We're going to work with Peter now. Nobody moved because word had gotten around that Wednesday was a dead horse. I understood my role in the world. She said, look at guys, the sooner we get down there, the sooner we're going to get this over with. So I was something to be gotten over with. I was an obstacle. So the next morning, I was very frustrated. I asked them four questions and finally built the relationship with them. And the first question was, how valuable do you plan for this day to be? On a seven-point scale, give it a one if you don't think this is worth a damn. But just say, I don't plan for this day to be valuable. Good. Thank you. Now we have a basis to communicate. Question two is how participative do you plan to be? Not want to be. How participative do you plan to be? Give it a one. I don't care how participative. Everybody's got a story about why the mouth stays shut. And the third question is how much risk do you plan to take? Because there's no safe way into the future. There is no safe path. The only safe path is surrender. The only safe path is dependency is finding a strong leader that I can blame. So if you want to take any risk, fine. And the fourth question is to what extent do you care about the learning of everybody in the room? If I acted as if I knew each of you, I would know that you care as much about the well-being of the whole as you do about the individual people that you're touching. And that's a tough one. And I said, one is fine, seven is high, risk, participative, the message in the questions is all these are in your hands. And if you decide that your life is going to be a one, 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 I'll fall in love with you. Because at least you're showing up and saying, okay, the fact low risk, lousy day, and it's something I planned on. I said, let me join you in a lousy day. There's nothing to argue about. When I gave these questions to these wonderful executives at Ford, an hour later, I had to ask them to please stop. I realized to help them give voice to their doubts, their reservations, their caution, their silence. The fact they didn't, this was not their idea. They didn't say, oh, would you develop me? They were getting their ticket punched. 
giving them a structure to express that brought us into relationship with each other. How much risk do you plan to take today? If, if you say nothing, then I just get curious. When I first started running groups, I'd always take the most awful, objectionable, cantankerous person and think, okay, that's my job today is to get them on board. True captain style. And then after a while, you just get interested. And you say, you don't think this is worth a crap, do you? And they say, honestly, I don't. And I say, finally, an honest man, could you tell me more? And so it's a sequence. I need to make connection. I need to make contact. I need them to know I'm on their side. Otherwise, don't ask the question. If you ask the question where we don't have a context of connectedness, then it comes across as an accusation. And so if I don't feel there's some trust, if I haven't been vulnerable with them and they've all over with me, sit on the question and wait until the moment comes around. You know, the last thing you want to do is ask this of your children. Maybe when they're in their mid to late 50s, as mine are, you might consider the possibility of someday asking that question. Sometimes when I'm in a group and it's not the safety of a small, I'll ask people for something and nobody says anything. So the tendency is to move on or talk louder or faster or explain it for the fourth time. I was with, working with Meg once and she said, Peter, we should move on. They're not volunteering. And I said, and I just had this thought. I, and I said, let's not. I said, would each of you answer the question, why aren't you saying anything at this moment? What's the story you're creating about your silence in a high-risk situation? Okay, which is what the large group here is. And then tell the person next to you. And so everybody did that came back, what's your story? And, you know, certain themes. I talk all the time. It's nice to listen. Dog ate my homework, all kinds of reasons we have for explaining. I had the thought that however you answer that question is how you're living your life, right? As soon as you declare what a waste of time this session is, something inside you starts to shift. And, and the same with your life. It is totally contextual. The call is to take risks, even though it's a large group and I don't know that I'll be heard or understood or felt. The question we began with was, what have you done to contribute to the very thing you complain about or want to change? We invite you to bring back to mind your answer. Maybe the answer has even shifted a bit since listening to the first half of the episode. Because Peter and these conversations have meant so much to me personally, I'd like to share a poem that I've written. As you listen, notice what ownership feels like in your body. The poem is called Prayer During a Flood. Inside each of us, an ocean of roaring waves. And amid the endless torrent of water, there's an island. Your toes find the sandy bottom, your feet the dry ground. On that island, an altar. Do you see it? The sacred spot where you lay down your fear, your panic, your obsessions, your loneliness, anger, and suffering, the thrashing rhythm of your soul dies in that place. So leave it there. An offering to the source, a bloodletting price you pay to live in, through, and beyond the floodwaters. You see, the boat you are building loves your sea legs. It reminds you that you have oceans within you, that you know how to take the waters one wave at a time until you emerge into your fullest self and breathe air again. As we return 
Peter continues discussing the ownership conversation. What's in question most of the time is whether people believe they have a choice over the matter, whether it's work, home, marriage, neighborhood. And the dominant narrative says that you don't. It says, if I want to understand you, I have to find out what your parents like. We have a belief that if you're a low-income person, somehow you're doomed to a life of suffering and no connection. In almost every situation at some point, when people are talking about how difficult their life is, I know the only thing ultimately useful to them is if they can make the switch from feeling the world is happening to them or they never had a chance to the notion that I do have a choice. I just think this whole notion of belonging and the structure for belonging, that's a kind of a agenda, hinges on whether people think they can choose in the face of anything. Victor Frankl made, learned about choice, and he had something called, it was kind of choice therapy, and he learned it in a concentration camp. And he said, there I was, and there we were. And some of us felt that even in the smallest thing we could choose. And those that gave, them, gave over to the impossibility of their situation were the first ones to die. And maybe the choice seemed like nothing, whether to sit here, sit there, stay awake, go to sleep. The real casualty of a patriarchal world is to lead us to believe inside that this is what I have to do to make a living. If our goal is to move into an alternative narrative, if the goal is to say, can we create a future distinct from the past, not just problem solve, do a little improvement. Most reform efforts are just a little improvement. So if we want to live into an alternative future, it will only happen when each of us decides that we can have a hand in the nature of that future. Otherwise, we're problem solving and making things a little better. And so it's a big deal. It may be the point as to whether I chose my life. It may not have turned out well. And I'm not arguing that my choices were the best one. But I do have the feeling that maybe it was a life that I chose and a story that I wrote. And I can't write my story without all of us writing our story. Otherwise, off to a monastery. And so the question, how do you get express care for the well-being of the whole? Well, it's by you asking people certain questions that I know if they answer. For that moment of answering, even if they reject the question, they're showing up as a participant in deciding what our future will be. In the small terms, it's for another 30 minutes. You know, but what I do in the next 30 minutes is a small version of my life. So here we are. The sequence, which I'll mention, it's kind of a funny spot that I'm in. I talk, and then every time we get feedback, we say, can't we have more small groups? Nobody's ever said, couldn't Peter talk for a longer time? Thank God for the small group. But the sequence is you ask people what's bothering you, what frustrates you, what do you care about? It's driving you crazy. And you listen to what that is, and then you ask them, uh, what are other people doing to cause this situation? Could be work, could be home, could be life, could be neighborhood, could be Cincinnati or Australia. Because our instinct is to say, if those people would change their behavior, my life would be better. The third question is, you say, thank you. Now, what's your role in creating this? And they're always either sins of omission or sins of commission. And the sins of omission are always more deadly. It's the asking of the question. It's not squeezing the answer. Just like the previous one, I love ones and twos. Then now I'm interested. And in this case, sometimes people will say, I see no way I'm contributing to this problem. I've looked at it. I thought about it. I know what you're getting at. I know what you're saying. 
But the fact of the matter is, in no way I'm contributing. You don't know the people I'm dealing with. I'm a true victim here. And the larger society feeds that, especially when it comes to social issues, victim, victim. And so if somebody says to you, I honestly cannot tell you how I'm contributing to the problem, then you ask them, well, if you were contributing to the problem, what form might it take? So I learned that in Gestalt therapy. I was in a session once and with Mike Riker looked at me and says, Peter, are you angry? He said, no, I'm not angry. I don't do anger. And he says, if you were angry, what would you be angry about? And then boom, you know, they had gone to dinner by the time I finished with all the things I was angry at. And so the question is, if you were contributing, contributing to the problem, what form might it take? And then if they still are stuck, and sometimes people generally can't think of it, then I know that's their contribution, because they can't see choice. They honestly can't see it. It's not like people are lying, but they don't see any path towards choice. Well, their choice then is to live under these conditions. Later, when you talk to them or give them feedback, and they say, so, Peter, what do you think is going on here? I said, well, your issue, your contribution is the problem, is you don't think you're a contributor. And you say it lovingly in your own style. They say, well, what would you recommend? Beats the shit out of me. What choice do you think you have? We got the three questions. And again, the loving, listening response is always, why does that matter to you? What's at stake? What is it costing you? If I can tell you what choice I'm making, silence, activity, control, then you can ask me, Peter, what's the payoff? And what's the cost of of the path you're on? Those are beautiful alternatives to giving advice. What's the payoff? And there's enormous payoff to passivity because at the end of the day, I know I can claim, well, at least it wasn't my fault. And that didn't do anything with my life, but it wasn't my fault. That's a big payoff. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the conversation in Peter's book, Community, Structure of Belonging, and in the show notes. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Gorman.